I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. I want to ask a question. It's uh, anybody platform that can answer this question. or It's not necessarily a question. It's just a what you think. What is the purpose or is there a purpose in miracles? What is the purpose for or is there a purpose in miracles? Anybody? Go ahead. All right. Very good. Very good. Doug? Very good. Very good. Anybody else? Go ahead, brother. Anybody else? I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Brother Graves. Build your faith. Okay. Anybody else? What's the purpose or is there a purpose in miracles? How does God hand out miracles? Let's just say, I mean, does he just, uh, you know, he looks down and decides today Doug Sim is going to have a miracle. Um or does he decide that Roxanne's going to have a miracle tomorrow? Maybe if Roxanne's good enough, she'll get a miracle tomorrow. She'll get her miracle. Okay. Anybody else? Theories here. Go ahead. Very good. It's not based on how good we are. Good. Good. Go ahead.
Do you think the miracle sometimes is handed out to get uh, an, an unbeliever's attention? Okay. So then, I desperately need a miracle. I can't hardly walk. I mean, I'm, I, I can. I'm just talking, okay? I, I can't hardly walk, and, and, and Robin is an unbeliever, okay? Now, she believes in Jesus, but she's one of those Church of Christ people. Forgive me if anybody's Church of Christ. She's one of those Church of Christ people that, that you know, they, they just don't hand out miracles anymore. And God does a miracle for me. What does that do to her? Makes you question it, doesn't it? Or it makes you question it, or you try to figure out why it happened outside of a miracle. Miracles don't always cause people to believe. But miracles always do follow them that believe. Do you see what I'm saying? And all of us has a, has a story, and we've heard a few of them. We all have a story. I, you know, I've got my story. I've had several stories of, 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 of miracles, of healing. When I say that, I always I, I separate the two. I believe healing and miracles are two separate things, though we do call them a healing of, uh, or a miracle of healing. But when you look at the, at the uh, gifts of the Spirit, we see them, you know, they're separate. So, so we, we look at, you know, we look at people. I, I, I can say this without a doubt. It took me understanding trust, even though I'd had what I considered healings. It took trust to get me to the point where I could receive, and, and I, please understand what I'm saying. I don't think there's any small miracles or small healings with God. But in my case at that particular time, it, it, was, a, it was a major thing for me. And I've already was told that something bad was going to happen. And, and as a result of that, you know, I got really serious and I began to trust God and just simply said to God, I know, you know, God, either you heal me or you kill me, but don't let me go. And I remember that prayer, don't let me go an inch at a time. And then I was healed the next day. So I see, you know, I see that there was a trust factor there. If I hadn't prayed that kind of prayer, I don't feel like I would have received the miracle. Now, I don't personally believe God, God, you don't get good enough for God. It's a matter of a faith issue. It's a matter of a trust issue. It's a matter of getting, you know, hope. You know, I better be careful. I've got to preach tonight. I've got a message, and I'm going to preach it this morning, and I won't have any preach tonight. Okay, so I better back down here. So, <laughs> so, so we, you know, we, 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 look at, we look at a miracle, and I believe God does miracles just simply because he wants to for his people. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us are going to be healed every time or we're going to get some kind of major financial miracle. But on the other side of it, I also believe we never go without. And if we would look back, if we take the time to look back at our lives, and I can't emphasize that enough, we always live in the now. And we look at what we're lacking now. And we were fear, fearful of what the future holds for us. And we fail to be able to go back and to historically look at our lives and realize where God has brought us from and how many times He has provided for us, how many times He has healed us. And if we begin to look back on that, then we begin to, to develop that trust again until we finally get to that point where you know, I can't, I can't sit here and be melancholy. 
I can't sit here and, and think that, you know, everything's bad and everything, nothing's going to work out. How many, how many in here seriously can say that you have had some really rough times in your life, but you came through them? Then why is it? Why is it that we cannot believe God for whatever rough time we're going through now? Probably whatever I'm, I'm saying here this morning, I'm going to come back and say again tonight. So uh, that doesn't mean you can miss church. But, you know, I'm just saying some of it that you'll get. But uh, let, me, let me read to you Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25. Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame, now someone already mentioned this. What was he famed for? He was famed here for the fact that teaching, I think, was part of it, preaching, but also for the miracles and the healing that he had. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were a lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him a great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Now, look at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, I'm going to show you something here. I've taught on this. I've got a series that I did on uh, the Beatitudes, and I'm going to just bring out a couple of things that Glenn Clark had made mention of when we go through these. Uh, I want you to get this. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Now, he took them up. They saw the miracles that he did. He opened, it opened a door into the heart of his disciples for him to be able to do really what Jesus wants us all to do, and that is to change us. It's not a matter, just a matter of us walking around for the loaves and the fishes and getting all the healings and so forth and not changing our lives. The important thing that the Lord can do in our lives is change us and change the way that we think and develop in us a trust and a faith in him and to believe that what he says is true. That's what he wants to do. Now, he goes on, and he talks about them, and he opened his mouth. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Glenn Clark, and I, I, again, I taught this. He made the statement. Um, he believed in what is called divine symmetry, and he, and, he, and he mentioned using things that we understand, such as it takes a husband and a wife, male and female, to create a child, too takes two to create and he used this in the beatitudes and what he said was they that mourn and the meek they produce a hunger and a thirst for righteousness so if you want to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness then you have to learn what it is to mourn and you have to learn humility or meekness which is simply control it's what meekness means so mourning and meekness produced a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And look at verse 7. It said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He takes merciful and purity of heart, and they produce the peacemakers. Number nine, Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets. 
I personally believe that the same thing here. People that are persecuted, people that are reviled, they are the people that become prophetic. So you take the Beatitudes and you put them together like this and you begin to have an understanding of how you can get to this point. I, I, I think that we so, we so miss in our thinking because our minds, our minds are so finite. You know, we, we, we can't quite grasp some, some, some things here that, you know, we try but we have a hard time and only through a great deal of prayer and fasting and truly seeking after God do we come to the conclusion of how things really operate within the kingdom. It doesn't mean they're difficult. It just means that our carnal way of thinking is so foreign to the spiritual mind. And so we look at this, these, these kind of things and we realize this is what I want to be. I want these attitudes to be my attitudes. I want to be merciful. I want to be pure in heart. I, I want, you know, no one likes necessarily like to mourn. Mourn in its, its purest definition is a sense of selfishness. Mourning can be selfish. Now, that doesn't mean we don't mourn. You know, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But there is a sense of selfishness with it. Because we don't want to let go of whatever we're mourning for. We don't want to let go of a person. We don't. None of us do. But there's a sense of that. And if you kind of look with that definition, you can see, you know, the person that mourns. Then you see the next one, blessed are the meek. So you've got the person who's kind of selfish, and then the person is humble. And then that takes the two of those things to create the next one. They that hunger and thirst for righteousness. If there's anything that we need as a people, it's a true hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Not just to come to church, just to fill in, to just, just to be there because we know that's the right thing to do, but we're there for a purpose. I want to understand God better every time that I come. And if I manage to live for God in this body for the next 30 or 40 years, which I really doubt, but if I manage to do that, I hope at the end of the time that I have more understanding than what I do now. That is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, true righteousness. And the more that you live for God, and the more that you compel yourself, if you would, to, to, get, to, to get into the understanding, into the Word of God, into to true prayer, the more you hunger for it. The more you get, the more you hunger. And same saying all this is because when these attitudes become our attitudes, then the miraculous and the healing is not so foreign to us. Because it just becomes a part of what we are. You know, it, it's like you get up in the morning and you breathe. You know, I, I believe the things of God should operate in our lives like that. And if, if whatever I'm praying for doesn't occur, then that doesn't mean that I'm losing faith in God. That means my trust in God knows that there is something else that is better that is coming down the road. There's a purpose in what's going on. Oh, Lord, I haven't even got in the lesson. I've already killed 20 minutes. I do you understand what I'm saying? Anybody got a question or remark on what I'm saying? I'll probably say it all again tonight, except to just preach my message. Go ahead.
the wisest thing you ever do is to keep a journal. You know what I did? You know, I, I know I talked to you about this before, but I've, I've kept a journal since I started pastoring. Now, I don't, I'm not one of those people that can sit down and write 12 pages for every day. I don't know what some people write about. Normally, it becomes the same thing. But I write down anything that I feel is, is big in my life or, or try to go through and, and put something in there. And five or six years after I started that, I went back and looked at that. And I, I found out something about myself. Because I got to looking at what I was writing down, and I began to realize I was not finding a whole lot of good. I always thought that I was. And when I started looking at what I was writing, I was writing down the bad things that were happening to me instead of the good things that were happening to me. And I started change. That was a point of change for me. That, that's a point where I realized, you know, now obviously these are the things that are in my heart. And you know how the bunch of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I also believe that the hand writeth. And, and so I begin to change some of that, my thinking. All right, let's not talk about the bad things because it was my way of complaining to God is what it was. It was my way of complaining. I don't deny the fact that sometimes you just get so down that you need to complain to God. I, everybody does that. But it shouldn't be a, a, a habit. It shouldn't be something we do every day. And so, so I begin to change. And when I begin to change some of those areas, I begin to see that my thinking started changing as well. And I didn't dwell on those things. I tried to put those things behind me. I have come to another conclusion when you're talking about this, these attitudes. An individual that has a hard time praying for more than five minutes is an individual that begins to think on the bad things and they don't want to dwell on them. And the reason for that is I've seen people, and I've known people personally, who had a terrible time. I've known preachers who have had a terrible time getting down and praying for a length of time. But then if you knew their life, you realize what they were doing. Instead of giving these to God and turning all this into praise, they were getting down on their knees and all this bad. The devil was slamming them with all the bad. And instead of praying through this and, and, and getting rid of this spirit, they just decided, I'm going to quit praying altogether because every time I get down to pray, all I'm doing is thinking of bad things. And so they weren't going anywhere because they weren't getting through. And the devil would love. We have that, that, that within all of us. We have that tendency to dwell on the bad. That's, that came from the fall. And so you know, we have to pray what we call praying through until we get to that point of delight in God. And that's where sometimes it takes you opening the Bible and going through the promises of God or going through your journal and realizing the good things God has done for you. So you can pray into because I think that cha that changes you faster than anything, and that's some of what Jesus taught on the Sermon of the Mount. You know, we know that Jesus is the Word that was made flesh, and His words, His words, or He obviously used words rather to teach His disciples, and He backed up His speech with the miracles and the healings. This is how He backed it up, and more, even more than that, He He had authority, and He showed that authority over death and over uh, over disease, demons, and even nature. 
And when Jesus spoke, his words had special meaning because he proved he could provide for his followers. And I want you to note that. Don't ever think that Jesus does not provide for his people. Don't ever think that you're going to go through life in a situation where you're never going to have anything because that's not true. He provides us exactly with what we need. And when we do with what he gives us the right thing that we should do with it, God will give you more. But it's a matter of coming to an understanding standing that there is a lot of things in life that we absolutely do not need. That doesn't mean God won't give you some goodies. But if you are so focused on that that you never really understand what God has done for you, you will never get above needing something that you don't need. That's, it's imperative. It's imperative for us to come to that. Peter noted the care that God had for his people. Uh, on the birthday of the church, when he said, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. The evidence of Jesus' miraculous ministry was a strong appeal that resulted in a great deal of conversions. And what we deal with today, it seems like that there are so many people out there, so many churches that do not preach truth. They do not preach truth, but they brag on all their miracles. Now, you just keep one thing in mind. The seventh chapter, any time that you begin to, I don't understand that, you read the seventh chapter of Matthew. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, so enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which art in heaven. You see, I really don't care if God never does another miracle, if he never does another healing in my life, as long as I can make it to heaven. That's the important thing. Don't lose sight of that. What's important is that we do the will of God. That's what's important. The attitudes, or be happy attitudes. I got this neat thing I buy for my wife on Valentine's Day. It's these little animals, they dance. Kind of look like me, little little dogs, you know. <laughs> you know, I got one, his heart beats, and his eyes light up. And one, when he starts, he starts twisting, you know, and he sings his song, Be Happy. You know, I can't remember how it goes, but something about be happy. And every time I, every time I see that, of course, she puts him up and hides him. She went by and know that I got to get her one of <laughs> Of course, a lot of it is because I play with him. Um, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's just the, the fact that, you know, be happy. That's what Jesus was trying to say in the Beatitudes. Be happy. Be happy. And, and, you know, if you look at these, and again, I've already touched on them, but if we look at these and, and understand that Jesus was teaching these concepts, not just then, not just in that particular portion of the Scripture, he was constantly teaching the concepts of the Beatitudes. He didn't do this just one time. He was constantly teaching these concepts. His ministry on earth was important. And you can, again, you can read this in Matthew 5 and, and, and see it all. But the term blessed should be understood as happy or contented. Nine times Jesus used this term in the beginning of, of, of this sermon. Now, these uh, Beatitudes are not meant to be multiple choice elements. These are something that we all, as true Christians, should be living and should be active in our lives. 
These are not just multiple choice. These attitudes serve as a, as a personal measurement of our spiritual walk with God. Happiness or blessedness, according to Jesus Christ, does not happen according to our wishes, but according to God's will. I can't just wish myself happy. But it's God's will that I be happy. So I don't have to wish myself happy. I just need to live right in the middle of God's will. And if I live in God's will, everything's going to be okay. And even when bad things occur, I still know everything's going to be okay because I'm living in God's will, and that attitude should be happiness or blessedness or joy, really more joy than happiness. Now, these attitudes, again, they serve as a personal measurement for our, our, our spiritual walk. Happiness or blessedness, according to the Christ, does not happen, again, according to our wishes, but according to His will. And, you know, looking at this, through testimonies of faithful believers in present and past ages, we can realize the absolute truth of the Beatitudes. I, uh, I know I bring it up a lot, or used to more so than now, but... I, because it was such an influence, such an impact in my life, uh, was my my great aunt, and and I I just sister Lotch, and, and you know most of you most of you older ones remember her, but she was such an she always seemed happy even into her nineties. Uh, she she always seemed I never you know before we were in church we used to go over there a lot my wife and I, and she would never, of course we knew that I knew the truth. But she never force-fed it, but by her life, it made me want what she had. It was because she was always half, she was half-blind, couldn't hear. And she was always give a testimony, and I wanted to listen. I wasn't in church, you know, I, but I wanted to listen. I wanted to hear because how is it that you, living by yourself, at that time she was in her 80s, living by yourself can be this way. I mean, you went over there one time, and she was in her 80s, and she was climbing an apple tree in her 80s. I seen her here one time. You know, she couldn't see, but she wanted to dance at 90. And she grabbed the back of the pew so she wouldn't fall, and she danced. That is the attitude that influences other people. And if there's anything we can communicate, especially to, to the older ones, be happy. Just simply be happy. You know, communicate that to the younger ones. This is not a drudgery. This is not something that, you know, i got to dress a certain way and look a certain way. I enjoy doing what I do. I enjoy looking the way that I look. I enjoy that. I find ways around things. You know, if an old woman in a granny dress can climb an apple tree... I went over there. I'll never forget that when she did it. I walked under because I'm more scared. I didn't know if she knew it was there or not. You know, drive right by her. She couldn't hear. She couldn't see. I don't know how she's going to get the apples, but she was doing it. You know, and I said, uh, you ought to work your way down. I'll be down here in case you fall. <laughs> she didn't fall. You know, there's, there's rules for the righteous. Now, while, while the... Beatitudes are general in nature. Jesus became more direct in the rest of his sermon, and he, he spoke on guidelines for money, attitude towards others, elimination of worry. He did a lot of that. He encouraged prayer in his Sermon on the Mount for this most valuable tool for a relationship with God and for self-examination. You know, prayer 
is something, if we have a hard time doing it, you know, I'll be the first one. I believe in spending quality time with God. But I also believe this, that any time spent with God is quality time. Do not say, well, if I can't pray for an hour, I'm not going to pray at all. Whatever you can do is good. I have learned through the years that I, I keep a constant connection. I, you know, I, I, I talk to God all the time. Uh, when I'm driving, I'm talking to God. When I'm out doing anything, I'm talking to God. I talk to God like I would talk to, to somebody up here. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get down and spend some quality time with God. But I talk to Him, and honestly, He talks right back. And so, I mean, that's the whole point right there. It's that communication. And, and that's what we should do. We need to get a communication with Him. So he, he goes on and he, he lays out uh, in the Sermon on the Mount the Lord's Prayer. Now, we don't, this is not the kind of prayer that needs to be recited verbatim. That's not what it was intended to do. It, it, it would, uh, it's, if you do that, you could just kind of imitate a playback device. That's, that's, all it was, that's all it would be. But rather here, most of us recognize the prayer to be a pattern for personal prayer. Jesus stated, after this manner, therefore you pray. And so he said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So you start your prayer with praise. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is submission. Give us this day our daily bread, prayer request. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, repentance. Forgiveness and thankfulness is also when that forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, self-examination. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You end it with praise. That is the pattern. You don't have to use this, but if it helps you to go over it in your mind to get how the pattern should be in prayer, that's what you do. But after a while, that's just what you begin to do. You know, sometimes you just go out and you just spend all your time in praise, telling Jesus how great he really is. You just spend that time, and you will come out of that so, you know, you, I like to go out and, and garage and sing because I don't want anybody to hear me. I sing out there and feel good, come in. My wife said, there's a dog dying somewhere outside there. Would you go check? I... <laughs> you know, if you reflect on these six areas for our personal prayer, it helps us develop a balanced approach to prayer, and it guides us to seek God's purpose for our life. The Sermon on the Mount challenges us to, to change our focus from things in the world to heavenly priorities. You know, before embracing things non-believers feel are important to their welfare, a, a Christian should examine them in the light of Scripture and eternal values. Well, I think one of our greatest hindrances is the fact that we somehow compare ourselves to non-believers, and we think that we should have what they have. And you know, I'm sorry. You know that some people some people do well and and. They're Christians. I think a lot of them, again, is the attitude. And not only that, it's just sometimes people are just smarter in business. Let's not take that away. Some people have a, uh, an anointing of a king. Some have an anointing of a priest. And some are good. And thank God for people like that because they can help churches out. But now you look, you know, 
Sometimes you just, you know, you, you do things the wrong way. I think God always takes care of us, but if, we, if we're careful and we quit comparing ourselves and quit trying to be like the world is and quit trying to have what the world has, then we will again find out that we can do much better and be happier because we're not comparing ourselves. Even, even uh, I believe it was Paul that said, he that compares himself among themselves are not wise, and that's comparing one to another. I cannot compare myself to you because we're different. I can't play a bass. In fact, I'm trying to think what I can do. I can preach a little bit, okay, and, and teach a little bit, but, you know, it's, 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 I can't make that comparison. So if I look over here at him playing the bass and constantly, well, I know, well, God, why didn't you give me that? Then I'm walking around unhappy all the time. But if I take what God has done for me and use it to the best of my ability for the kingdom of God, then I find joy again. And quit trying to be, you know, some, you ever notice that there are some people that cannot go to church unless they are everything in that church? I mean, they got to be the preacher, the teacher, and then when they're, they're they, they got to play the keyboard, and then they'll jump to the drums. You know, it sounds like one of those guys you see. You know, they got the cymbals on their heads and the bass drum, and you know, and, they, and, and that, that's that's they're everything, and they're not happy unless they're everything. And you, folks, everybody has got something they can do. And it may not be a platform thing, but everybody's got something they can do when they can find that niche and fill that niche. Then they find joy. And thank God that there are people out there that have found niches and, and are doing things that they should be doing. Thank God for it, because the church wouldn't be the same without them. It would never be the same without them. But it's just, it's just a matter of finding that and not trying to compare ourselves. <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty six, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. Jesus' sermon was unlike any other and Jesus impacted the world both by his miracles and his teaching. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for they taught them on, uh, as having authority and not as the scribes. And in another way that Jesus taught was in parables. I, I, I've tried to, you know, when you look at parables, you see that Jesus used things that the people could understand. You know, he would using a, a farmer sowing the seed. He used fishermen. He used areas that people could understand, but he taught spiritual truths in those areas. And I've wondered today, what would he have used as a parable in our time? You know, and a computer tech went out to sow computers. And some of his teaching fell on hard heads, and some fell on people who could understand. And out of the midst of all of it, Eldar came. The computer genius of computer genius. Now, I won't even tell his mother this. So <laughs> and, and because that he came out of the world from addictions and problems and came to McCormick's Creek Church, it took... Pastor Robertson out of the dark ages. Now there we go. So there was a parable for that. And there, you know, all of our lives are a parable. All of our lives are a parable. I mean, really, when you think of it, you look at what you came out of, and what can you teach others through that life? What can you teach others? 
And it's, it, it's wonderful. See, you know, he used parables. He used what people understood, and it taught these, these, these truths. He also referred to himself as the good shepherd. Now, this comparison would suggest compassion and protection to those who follow him. Sheep were considered to be valuable commodities, and therefore a good shepherd would use whatever means necessary to protect his sheep. Jesus stated, The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine in John ten thirteen. Jesus also spoke of himself as being the vine and his followers being the branches. Now branches grow naturally from the main stem or vine. Fruit grown on the branches require nutrients that must travel from the vine. And Jesus stated, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now Jesus desires a continual bearing of fruit. And this passage reveals that our prayers are blessed if we fully submit to his will. Now I was reading that. And I don't know if this this may be from left field, but it just made a great deal of sense to me. How many has ever you ever had apple trees, peach trees, any pear trees? What happens when a branch gets too much fruit on the branch? What does it do? It breaks. Now. Maybe little Roberts in theology here. But I have seen people actually break through trying to be soul winners. What's the key, then, for a person who is a good soul winner? What's the key? Because there's an answer. If you're in an orchard, you'll see this. You tie it up or you prop it up. And you see, that's where I think we make our mistakes. When you've got somebody who is a great soul winner, you need to prop him up a little bit. You need to help bear. That's where the Bible talks. Bearing one another's burdens. You've got someone who's working and working. I tell you what, you know, you've got, you got a new person in the church or people and you're, you're the one that's won them. They're going to they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna keep pulling at you and pulling at you and pulling at you. That's why we all need to be a part of it. It's not a matter of saying, look, I want ten people to God. It's a matter that we want ten people to God because we helped each other. That's what the church is about. It's one body. And, and so we, we do, and, and I see that because I used to, I've wondered, it took that to really help me understand that because I've seen great soul winners backslide. I've seen people who said, I just can't do it anymore. It's because they weren't being propped by other people. They weren't being helped by other people. They were bearing so much fruit they were about to break. And so he was teaching this, and he said, We need to bear much fruit. But we do. If one person's good at bringing them in, then we should be some other people that's good at discipling them. It's all of us. You know, that's where so many ministers burn out because they're they're in doing all of it. And, 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 they, and they, everything that's going on has to, you know, has to go through them. And before long, they just can't do it anymore. So they just, it's a matter of not just quitting doing it. Sometimes they just leave. And that's sad. Because if the whole church gets involved, then we can bear much fruit. According to Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, Jesus is noted to have given at least 
45 <coughs> excuse me <coughs> predictions now some of these predictions related to his trial his execution and his resurrection and through these fulfilled predictions the church can have faith in Jesus prophecies of his second coming now you think about this Anytime someone asks you, well, how do you know the Bible's true? You can say, well, Jesus gave 45 of his own predictions here, and by and large, most of those were fulfilled. There are a few that still haven't, and that's talking about his second coming. But by the fact that they are fulfilled, it gives us the knowledge that if Jesus has fulfilled these that he's already said, then he's going to continue to fulfill these predictions that he made. And God provided warnings that believers could be prepared in the midst of stressful times. We are living in those stressful times. Jesus stated, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. He said, I have overcome the world. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? He's telling you, I have overcome the world. So you be of good cheer. You're going through hard times, but I overcome it. What's he saying? Because I overcome it and I dwell in you, that means you can overcome it as well. If you are full of the Spirit of God, you have the ability to overcome any tribulation that comes against you. That's where he said, because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. So he gave us warnings. The Gospels record over 80 times that Jesus used the term, it's interesting, Son of Man. Jews knew the direct messianic reference to these terms from Daniel's writings and he said I saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed in Daniel seven thirteen and 14 now, while Jesus was on trial, he said, Ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And this is why the high priests rent their clothes. They knew of Daniel's prophecy. And Jesus was telling them directly, That's who I am. And you're talking about a oneness scripture. There's not a Jew alive, an Orthodox Jew, that believed more than one God. And when they rent their clothes, that was saying, <laughs> they were saying, he's saying that he's God. Not, not the Son of God in as much as a son separate from the Father. But that he was a Son of God, of course, within the, in the flesh. But he was God incarnate. And that's what he was saying to them. And this is why they rent their clothes. And they go on to say, this is the high priest rent his clothes, and he saith, What needeth we any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now the scripture recorded that Jesus demonstrated power over death. Each time there was many who confirmed the actual death and witnessed the resurrection. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue whose 12-year-old daughter was sick. And shortly after Jairus appealed to Jesus for help, a messenger came saying, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered, and he said, Fear not. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. In Luke eight forty nine. When Jesus arrived, the critics laughed at him when he said, She's not dead, but she sleepeth. In Luke eight fifty two. Jesus put them all out, took her by the hand, and said, saying, Maid, arise, and her spirit came again. And she arose straightway and commanded to give her meat. 
Another concern, or another occurrence rather, of Jesus raising someone from the dead was the raising of Lazarus. Now a message came to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. But instead of immediately going to his assistance, Jesus and his disciples waited. You know, I, I, when I looked at these two, and I preached on these uh, a few times, I looked at these two, and I've, I've often wondered, because uh, one didn't directly follow, but they were close. And I, I often believe that why Jesus prolonged going was because there was probably some Pharisees that said, well, you know, the, the, the little girl was not really dead. She was just in a coma. So this time, Jesus gave him four days. And so he proved that he had power over death to everybody. No one could question him after that, even though they did, but no one could really do it legitimately. So he waited those four days. Then they took away the stone from the place where he, the dead was and laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I know that thou hast, hearest me always, but because of the people... Which stand by, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus rose from the dead, and many people were amazed. But the greatest count, of course, of resurrection when he resurrected himself. That was the greatest. And so he just continued to, to get better and to get better. And he resurrected himself, and no one could doubt that Jesus truly was the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate. And the resurrected Jesus was seen by hundreds. People, more people saw this all along. For over 40 days, Jesus stated, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. For he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Jesus demonstrated his power over demons at least seven times as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, Fear over the devil's power was broken as people noticed Jesus' authority. Not only did Jesus have this power, but he also gave this power. Now, he gave it to his disciples. Jesus commissioned 70 disciples to go among the critics to minister afterwards. And the, the 70 returned with, excuse me, again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, Behold, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from the heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Do you see that promise? That promise was for his disciples, but that promise goes on to us. He said, for greater things shall you do than I did because I go to my Father. So it's passed on to us. It's passed on. We don't need to be fearful of a demonic presence. We don't. I had a man tell me just a few months ago. We were talking. He's not, uh, he's not of us. Uh, I'm not sure what he is. And but he was, you know, we were just talking about biblical things, and he said that uh, he, he made a statement. He said, "Well, I'm not afraid of the devil." He said, "I'm more afraid of human nature," which I agree. But there are times if you are not aware, because the Bible says we're not ignorant of his devices, we cannot ignore what Satan can do. We cannot ignore that. And if you ignore it enough, and you put everything on human nature. The devil's going to get an advantage on you. Now, on the other side of it, you can blame the devil for everything, and human nature will get an advantage of you. But you have to be balanced to this, and you have to reason the Bible gave us discerning of the spirits. 
It, we, we have to be able to discern what's going on. I've seen people, uh, I've seen people who've had problems in various areas, and you, you know, I know that within their nature, that's part of what they are. But there are times when it just gets, over, you know, it just gets worse and worse that you know that there is a demon spirit that's associated with that. And you are not going to get that person to pray through until that person gets rid of that spirit. And regardless of how much that you lay hands on somebody, you've heard me tell this story about Kenneth Reeves that said that he, he was casting a devil out of a lady, and he said that, that he seen it manifest itself, and he said it looked like one of, he just looked like us, you know, like a, uh, one of us. And he said it stood beside her and looked at him with, he said, terribly mean eyes. And he said it, 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 it turned and did not run. He said it walked out the back, went out, he said, out vestibule doors and stood and looked in the windows, just like the windows there in our, in, in the, coming into the sanctuary, and waited, and that woman jumped up and ran right back to where it was. And you see, she did not like getting rid of that familiar spirit. And you know, when you like something so much, yes, they have to flee at the name of Jesus, but they don't have to. But this spirit knew what was going to happen. She wasn't going to get delivered because she didn't want to be delivered. That's why it's so important for a person when they are delivered from evil that they receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost to fill the void. To fill the void that is there. Because people feel empty and they want whatever it may be, whatever it may be causing them to do. It doesn't matter to them because they just don't want to feel empty. And you see people come. We've seen them here. They come into the church and, and, and they get delivered and they shout and, they, and they, they, you know, they, they do all these things, but they never quite get through to the Holy Ghost. And so they go back and you see them back in the same state. Or you've even seen some that have spoken in tongues. But they don't like what they have in lieu of what they used to have. Evil is very prevalent out there. And our society today is as bad as evil as it can be. Just about what we are accepting right now is un it's unbelievable to me. I, I can't even fathom people people and, and this statement was made to me I I don't remember who made it, but someone who was on their Facebook that said that they're surprised at the amount of people who think that gay marriages and these people are in the church and they think gay marriages is okay. Or let them do what they want to do. If you do not stand up against evil and you think, well, do whatever you want to do, that's, not, that's giving them a license to do it. I'm going to love people. I don't care who they are, but I'm going to tell them right up front, I do not approve of what you are doing. It is wrong. It is sin, and it will take you to hell. Do not. I, and I feel like I need to say that because there are just too many people who say, well, just let them be, let them be. For two men to be married... It makes me almost gag. They say it's easier on women to see that than men. I, I don't know. <laughs> Two women. Who's supposed to be the husband? Can you imagine? Two men. This is my husband. I'm sorry. There is a part of me that's almost violent with this. You're a homophobe. Don't even put homo in anything about me.
Listen, I'm so far off, I still say queer, okay? So that's how far off I am. Uh, erase that last part. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just that, it, you know, I understand the world falling for this, but I do not understand the, the, the church. And, and you know what you're telling people by accepting anything like this is that they cannot be delivered from it. And my God can deliver from any sin. My God can deliver from any sin. That's telling people that they don't have hope. And, boy, that's not, that's not the God that I serve, a God that's full of hope. All right. He also had protection for the disciples. Jesus showed himself powerful over the elements of nature to his disciples. Mark recorded such a story. And Jesus said to his disciples, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there was also with him other little ships. Jesus fell asleep in the lower portion of the boat, and soon afterward a storm arose. The trained fishermen realized the disastrous potential of sinking, and they woke Jesus, asking if he cared about their situation. He saith unto them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, he rebuked them because of their lack of faith. Faith in what? Faith in his words, because he said, let us go to the other side. And they could not accept that they were going to the other side. All that storm was was just a way to expedite them across. That's all any storm is. Whenever you've got a storm in your life, that's God's way of blowing you to the direction you need to go. That's his way. They would have gotten all, you know, he had to rebuke the storm to, to cause them from, from having a panic attack. And so what did it, it took them twice as long to get to the other side. If they'd let it alone, the storm would have taken them to the other side and everything would have been fine. You see what I'm saying? All I'm saying is, we just made, I think of Sherry, we were talking. Sometimes you just simply get yourself out of messes and pray yourself out of messes and those messes are there to get you somewhere faster. If you will accept what God's trying to do, if you'll accept that, then you will find that you'll arrive a lot faster. So this is his way of taking care of me. Yeah, he, he said, you know, you, what, what's the problem, gentlemen? Because I, you know, I said we were going to the other side. Would storm come along and get us over there? Because I, you know, I wanted to, I had things to do, <coughs> places to go and people to see. So I, uh, so we got the storm, and now here you are griping and thinking we're not going to make it. Of course, we see another time that we're all familiar with when. Um, and Jesus was, they were out on the sea, and they were, uh, there was another storm that came by, and they saw Jesus walking on the water. And again, it was to prove to who he was to the disciples, because the Bible says that only, only God can tread over the waves of the sea. And so Jesus was treading over the waves of the sea, and, and Peter asked him, he said, well, if, if it be you, he said, uh, you know, tell me to come, beckon me to come. And he did. And Peter began to walk on the water. But again, he lost sight. He lost sight. And you see, that is, so, that is so much with us. You know, we, we get into a, uh, into a good church service, and we have someone that, that, that prophesies over us, or uh, we feel the Spirit of God in such a great way. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, and we know that anything is possible. But as soon as we walk out the doors, we begin to sink. 
will begin to go down. But the great thing about God is that he's always willing to extend a hand, regardless of where you are, to help you get through what you're going through. He's always there. And so, so we see this is, you know, and he goes on, and he's, he's talking about his ministry, his first miraculous feeding. You know, here again, he's taking care of them. It, it is thought, with the addition of the women and children, that, that conservatively, uh, Jesus provided well over 25,000 meals when he fed the multitudes. You know, the first miraculous feeding took place. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fishes. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and break, and he gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. They did all eat and were filled, and they, were, they took 12 baskets full down. They had eaten or about 5,000 men besides women and children. Second miraculous feeding, he took seven loaves and, uh, and fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude, and they did all eat and were filled, and they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full, and they all did eat, were 4,000 men besides women and children. In both meals, Jesus' prayer consisted of blessing and thanking God. I used to, there's no argument, but I used to have this thing going with Paul Davis. And he... I'd say, we'd be out eating somewhere, and I'd say, we got, we got to pray. He said, well, all Jesus did was thank God for it and bless it. So I said, well, okay. So I said, thank God, bless this, and that was it. But the thing is, it never did multiply. <laughs> I still had to pay for it. It didn't make any difference. So he still, to this day, will say, all God did was just bless it. You know, that's his thing, and it's true. It's all he did. <clears throat> So we see that he also he also talked about tax money, uh, and this is a good one because I have to read this quite often because I get so mad at taxes. You know, I go back to that scripture: "Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God's what is God's." And I always go back to the said, "Yes, but only what is Caesar's." I even tell I got a tax man. I tell him that. I say, "It seems to me that Caesar's getting a whole lot of what I got." <laughs> you know. <laughs> He is the most conservative tax man on the face of the planet, and he really is. But I don't have to worry about it. But it's just, you know, it's hard on everybody. And especially when you start paying for Obamacare it's by next fall and we all go into financial crisis. <laughs> you know, it's the truth. Somebody somewhere is going to have to pay for all this. Somebody does. And I'm afraid... Hey, you know, I'm almost. I'm, I'm already in that lower tax bracket. It's going to be all you folks, not us old folks. We don't have to worry about it. We just got to worry about when they have death panels, <laughs> and they start, you know, saying, "Well, Roberts has been around a little too long. Let's uh, give him a, give him a shot here. <laughs> I'll get rid of him." I'm sorry, folks. I, I I shouldn't talk about that. But whenever I see this, I just kind of get a little. And so some people question that uh, Jesus' relationship to Caesar, and again, they thought they could snare him into opposing the Roman government or the pious Jews who resented payments to Rome. They asked him, is it lawful for us, he said, to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But he, again, perceived their craftiness, and he gave him and told him the scripture I gave you to a while ago, and he showed him the superscripture on the, or the superscription, rather, on the coin. And they told him that, and you give him to what he belongs to him. And again, we see that uh, uh, 
uh, he did not ev- he did not justify evading taxes on the basis of Rome's corrupt behavior. So really, when it comes down to Rome was corrupt, but Jesus did not tell him to to evade paying their taxes to a corrupt government. And when you got people out there that will say that, then apparently they're not familiar with this passage of scripture. And no matter how much we don't like it, Jesus still said to do it even if it's corrupt. There's a purpose in everything that goes on is really what's saying. And even what we see and what we say is happening, you've got to remember that God has got a plan for this world. And this is, this is part of that plan. It really is part of it. We will learn. And I, I can see that more and more all the time. People, uh, the last, it seems like the last four or five years, we have been learning to do with less. We've been learning We've been learning that, that, uh, you know, that we can get through these hardships because I don't think we've seen the hardest of the hardships yet. I really don't. So we need to be aware and, and trust God. Another time an individual asked Peter, he said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And he saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or strangers? And Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus said unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, cast a hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto him for me and thee. So we should not worry about our financial condition, for God will assist us with regarding, or with regard rather, to meeting our needs and also and paying our obligations to society. God will. The one thing that I noted here, and I I've always I always bring this out, God did not dump that money into Peter's lap. He made him go work for it. He had to go catch the fish. And that is one thing, folks. And there has been people said, oh, God will take care of me. I don't have to do anything. That's a lie. You know, man doesn't work. The Bible says he doesn't eat. So you have to work. And then we see him cursing the fig tree. He rebuked a tree for not producing fruit. Although he was teaching a spiritual lesson, the disciples were astonished to discover the tree dead the following day. And Peter calling to remember, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig which thou curses is withered away. And Jesus answered, saith unto him, Have faith in God. Or rather in the original is have faith of God. So because this is what God's faith really is about. Uh, because he told him, he said, Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe you shall receive them, and you shall have them. In Mark 11, 21, 22 through 24. Through faith in God or through God's faith, we can overcome negative barriers in our life, and we do that by how we speak. He cursed the fig tree. It's through words you're justified. Through words you're condemned. And so he was not, you know, it's interesting if you read that. It was like he whispered something. It doesn't say everything he said to that fig tree. Just he cursed it, but he whispered something to the fig tree. And then the fig tree didn't bear any more fruit. And, you know, and there's, of course, a spiritual lesson there. But the fact remains that Jesus cursed this thing. <clears throat> there is, uh, yeah, I'm going to get into what I'm going to talk about next Wednesday, but the, there, is, there is a point that there are curses that come from God. And people don't like to talk about that because somehow they don't, they don't want to believe that God can do something like that, but God does. Because that's only righteousness. There has to be. You know, there comes a time when God deals and deals and deals with people that eventually that dealing and people don't change that can become a curse. And that is the righteousness of God. We have to, we have to accept some of those things. 
And so he demonstrates his power of sickness, disease. He ministered to hurting individuals everywhere that he, that he went, and people cried out their needs in spite of the crowd and reached out and touched him. The Gospels record numerous miracles that occurred in Jesus' ministry, each occurring through one of three avenues. Most commonly, individuals had faith in Jesus called out to him for help. They did the calling. A second avenue through which miracles and healing came was when family members sought Jesus on behalf of the one that needed him. The third way was when Jesus actually addressed the need of the person first before they ever cried out to him. Those are three avenues that uh, Jesus dealt with people. And there are many examples of people who demonstrated faith when they came to Jesus for healing. woman with the issue of blood, Bartimaeus who was blind, ten lepers. Now these examples and many others remind us of the letter to the Hebrews. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So he is. Another path through which healing took place involved friends and family members of the one who was sick. And we all know the example of the men who tore the roof off to get the one sick with a palsy down through the roof to Jesus' feet. There again, we see an effort that was made to get somebody to the feet of Jesus. We have to make efforts to get somebody to the feet of Jesus. Whether it's for healing, whether it's for salvation... We have to make the effort. It's up to us. God gives us what we have need of, but again, we have to make the effort. Stand with me. I'm not done, but I'm finished. Yes? Have the church pray for him? Okay, sure. Sure, we can do that. We're going to end this in prayer and pray for this gentleman here and uh, ask God to touch and help and heal him. And if everybody would, when he comes down, if you would just, just reach your hands down this direction and uh, help me and join with me in faith because we know God does take care of things, doesn't he? And he will meet the need. And we've been talking. You know, the purpose of talking about Jesus, about the miracles of Jesus, build faith. That's why we do it. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we have to have the faith to see something done. And I believe we've got the faith here this, this morning.